If you have a Bible, please open or swipe to Matthew chapter 5. We are returning yet again, once more, to the Sermon on the Mount. I think this will be the last time this year. Lord willing, we'll spend the next two Sundays focusing on Christmas and Advent, especially or specifically. But today, we are once again in Matthew. And I'd like you to follow as I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. I read this week about a critique published in 1958 of C.S. Lewis. It's probably amazing for us to think about anybody critiquing Lewis, right? But people did, people do. And Lewis, of course, is the famous author of the Chronicles of Narnia series, Mere Christianity, so many others, Screwtape Letters, and on and on. Wonderful uh, books, wonderful story of God saving him and what a gift he is, even though he's, of course, with the Lord, uh, but his writings live on. Um, So many books, so many writing. Well, one of the criticisms published in 1958 was the accusation that Lewis did not care much for the Sermon on the Mount. So Lewis, in a typical Lewis way, responded to this critique, and this is part of his response. He wrote, As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. Classic Lewis, classic Lewis, a perfect comeback. But if we're honest, there's a lot of truth to what he wrote. The Sermon on the Mount crushes us if we misread it, and, and that's key. But still, it's, it's convicting. This is how one writer summarizes the Sermon on the Mount, and I do this just to help us kind of find our place here where we will be at Matthew 5.43. The Beatitudes, those items that start the Sermon on the Mount, the the Beatitudes carefully examined, they descend upon us with eight successively humiliating blows. Perhaps they even make us question the genuineness of our faith. Next come the stunning metaphors of salt and light. Who can say he has fulfilled such a dynamic witness? And if that's not enough, then comes the statement, unless your righteousness surpasses that 
of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven, followed by six stringent illustrations of Jesus on what our righteousness should be like, each of them incredibly demanding, each impossible in our own strength. Almost every line of the sermon taken to heart will flatten us. It seems impossible. Indeed, the Sermon on the Mount is impossible. And even verse 48, the last verse we'll look at today, concludes with Jesus saying that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. How? Who can do that? Well, we'll resolve some of that tension of that last verse in a bit. But for now, we need to turn our attention to Jesus' final illustration, his application. Remember, what he's been doing since verse 17 is trying to teach his followers and others looking on who might have begun to think that he was coming to do away with the Hebrew Scriptures, do away with the law. He, he shows up to say, no, I've not come to do away with it. In fact, none of it's going to be abolished. He says, but I have come to fulfill. That is to show that it's true intention. It all comes through me and I alone possess the authoritative interpretation. Because again, for context, the teachers in Jesus' day, they had so massaged and manipulated the law that, that there was just a lot of craziness being taught. And we see that. We see that today. God's intentions had been neglected for some wacko ideas. And so, once again, as we've done through most of these uh, six illustrations or applications that Jesus has given, we're going to see what they had heard, number two, uh, what Jesus said, and then we will flesh it out in real life. So, what they heard and what Jesus said. And today, it has to do with enemies. How to respond to enemies, which none of us have. So, this is all hypothetical. Maybe. Look with me at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. (laughs) So let's stop right there. Now what they had heard is nowhere found in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's nowhere found in our Old Testament. Uh, There's no passage that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Now, of course, there is the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18, Jesus would refer to this at other times. But there's no scripture that adds, hate your enemies. Again, for emphasis, we have to point out that these, you have heard, but I say to you, examples, six of them that Jesus does here, he's correcting, not the Old Testament, itself, but, but, the, but strictly the misinterpretation, the misapplication of the Old Testament. And this one takes the cake because it's nowhere said in the scriptures. Now, a few things to observe. What they had heard, love your neighbor, that part of it, notice it omits the phrase as yourself, right? That's what the passage says in Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so what they had heard, the first part of it omits the as yourself, Additionally, this attitude of just loving your neighbor 
it misses the broader context of Leviticus. If you keep reading in Leviticus 19, they're, they're commanded to show the same depth of love, not just to their neighbor, but to what, what the passage calls those that are sojourning, those resident aliens, those non-Jews that are coming in and among the covenant people. They aren't to treat them worse. They're to treat them with the same love. That's what Leviticus 19, to 34 points out. So they had neglected to add uh, the as yourself to what they had heard to the first part. They had neglected to understand the broader context. But really the, the issue is this popular reasoning that was prevalent in Jesus's day seems to have been that if God commands love your neighbor, well then surely the opposite is true. Hate your enemies, right? Isn't that implied? Of course, on another occasion, Jesus would tell the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Most of us are familiar with that. And in that parable, he would make it clear that our neighbor is anyone that has need, whether they're literally a geographical neighbor or anyone in proximity, but it's, it's anyone that has a need. That, that is who our neighbor is, even as the story, the parable illustrates, those who are different racially, those who are different religious and ethnically. Anyone is is our neighbor. But there is a problem or a conundrum. I like the word conundrum this week. I think I'm going to say it again. God's hatred of evil, hear this, God's hatred of evil, it is, in fact, a central theme in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 say, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. Or Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Now, we we in our day like to talk about hating the sin but loving the sinner and you know kind of bumper sticker hallmark card kind of phrases and and there's truth in those but you heard it god hates evil doers not just evil he his soul hates the wicked now we could rationalize it away well those are psalms those are prayers so they're they're expressions of a human in prayer and there's truth to that yes but there's plenty more passages that say some things that create a conundrum. In fact, if you're interested, I'd recommend a book to you. It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's a great little book. It's basically, in in written form, four lectures that New Testament scholar Don Carson, D.A. Carson, who I quote quite a bit, uh, he gave these talks and then it was put into this book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. I recommend it to you. it will help resolve this conundrum. But for now, I must let this conundrum, and that's the fourth and last time I'll use the word, I need to let it sit with us. You can read Carson's book or come talk to me and we can have a socially distanced hike or socially distanced cup of coffee and flesh these things out. But this is key. This hatred is never commanded by God. So while there's this tension that exists with the scriptures talking about God's hatred of the wicked and the evil, nowhere 
are his people commanded to hate. So for them to have heard, love your neighbor and forget about as yourself and forget about the broader context and hate your enemies, that, that's nowhere to be found. They had completely just abused what the scriptures say. So that's what they had heard. That's what was the prevailing thought. But what was God's perfect intention? And now we look at Jesus' response. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The issue, again, is how we treat our enemies. Now, I've always struggled with enemies, okay? I think, you know, Paul, do you really have enemies? Like, is there really someone who wants to take your life? Is there really someone who wants to have utter destruction befall you and and see you completely humiliated? Like, that's what comes to mind when I think of an enemy, and that's what enemies want. I mean, of course, I think of the the enemy of, of all people, of all Christians, especially Satan. He wants all of that. But is there really a person that has it out for me like that? An enemy, if you just kind of simplify it, is really one who wants, or who, rather who is at enmity, or who who is in opposition to you. So when I think of it that way, then... Yeah, if I'm honest, I guess there are times when I'm at enmity with people and there's opposition that exists with people. Then really the potential exists for there to be enemies all the time. Enemies that I don't know, enemies that I do. And so Jesus is clear. Love those people who are at enmity with you or who you are at enmity with them. Love those people who, who there's opposition in your life with. Not only love them, and love them, by the way, isn't just have affections for them. To, to love is to, to show it, to, to want uh, good, to want their good, to want the selfless care for them. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He, he says, pray for them. Pray for them. I love this, what one writer says. One manifestation of love for enemies will be in prayer. Praying for an enemy and loving an enemy will prove mutually reinforcing. The more love, the more prayer. The more prayer, the more love. Think about that. When we have enmity with someone, when we have opposition, the more we love, the more we are inclined to pray. The more we pray, the more we will be inclined to love. Now, it's easy to do that with non-enemies. We, we generally like to love and help and serve and do things for people that we, we have a good relationship with. But it is hard when there's enmity with someone. So this is a strong command of Jesus. Now, we need to remember too, Jesus, right, he wasn't just this eloquent rabbi who, who knew nothing of hostility, right? Think of Jesus on the cross. Luke 23, 34 records him praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. His en- enemies who had just beat him and flogged him and, and 
hung him to die, drove spears through his, his hands and his feet. He prays for them, Father, forgive them. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, writes John Stott, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? That quote needs to be reread. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? Jesus on the cross kept praying for his enemies. And so, church, we're going to do that right now. I want each of us to think of an enemy and, and silently, quietly between you and the Lord, wh- who comes to mind that you are at enmity with? Maybe you've done something. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe someone's done something to you, but there's enmity. There's hostility. By definition, that you have an enemy or you are an enemy. And if you can't think of a name, Ask the Holy Spirit to bring one to mind. As I was studying, preparing this week, there were several occasions when I realized, oh, I do have enemies. And I don't like that. I like to be liked. But as I worked through this myself this week and names came to mind, it was good to love them by praying for them. So, if you have a name, just quietly, you and the Lord, pray for them right now. Pray for God to forgive them. Pray for God to bless them. Pray for God to draw them to Jesus. Let's pray quietly for a few moments. Father, would you help us love our enemies and pray for our enemies? And as Jesus says, those who persecute us, those who want to hurt us. And maybe it's because of our faith. And maybe some of the enemies that came to mind aren't even people we know. Maybe, maybe it's a government system or, or you know, some group. But, but I, I bet, Lord, there are real names we thought of. And we need your help. We, need, we want to be like Jesus. We need to. We need to take him at his word here and, and even as he did on the cross. We, we need to pray for our enemies and love them and pray more and, and help us love. Even I, I ask that today, some of the people we've just prayed for, you would, you would reveal to us a way we can love in a very real and tangible way before we, we lay down tonight to end this day. May we have the courage and, and, and truly obedience to say yes and, and obey you and what you call us to. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Jesus continues in verse 45. This loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you is so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' point, let me just kind of say it hopefully succinctly, um, his point is not to state that this is the means of us becoming his sons and daughters. Okay? To, to, to become sons and daughters is, happens only if you do this. Okay? That is not what he's in stating. His point, and, and he's spoken already earlier in, in the chapter, is to indicate that there's it, it a necessity that's required of pursuing a certain kind of sonship, relationship, that is patterned after our Father. Because this is the way the Father acts. It's his love that leads us to repentance, the Apostle Paul says in Romans. As Jesus illustrated, he's the father that runs to meet the prodigal. It's Jesus who left heaven and came for us. We are to pursue life in a way that's patterned after our father's character. That's what it means to be sons and daughters of our father who is in heaven. And then this, this great... Uh, statement here in verse uh, the end of verse 45 uh, and following for god makes his son rise on the evil and on the good right even today the sun is shining all over at least here geographically all over right this is what we call common grace what theologians have referred to as common grace he he sends the sun on good and evil he brings rain on the just and on the unjust. It's common grace. There are blessings throughout the world for everyone, not just for those sons and daughters, those Christians, those genuine folks who have a genuine relationship with him. There's blessings of common grace that that show his, uh, what one writer calls his primary providential action toward humanity, right? His primary providential action here and now, common grace. And then Jesus, again, very clearly says something we all understand, verses 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you only, implying only, big deal. He says, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Or if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? In other words, if you're just loving and kind to those you're in a good place with, big deal. Everybody does that. Even the bad people, like the tax collectors in Jesus' day, those in cahoots with Rome and, and those that embezzled that were just hated and despised, they do that with each other. Or, or the Gentiles, which was just a way of saying anyone that's not a covenant member of God's people, they do that. So, so big deal, right? People do that. The point is pretty clear. I love this quote. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. So some people may be able to do it in short measure, but it's only genuine followers of Jesus, those who've experienced his grace, who can do that. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. And to return good for evil, which is what it means to love enemies and to pray for them, is divine. So church, Jesus makes it clear that God's perfect intent with regard 
to our enemies is that we love and pray and pray and love. Will that characterize you and me today? Tonight, this week. We need help. But if that's not enough, we have one more verse. Again, C.S. Lewis. Like the Sermon on the Mount? Really? Who does? Verse 48. Verse 48 is, is the end of this section, not, not just our section today, not just as verses 43 to 47, but the end of these, what, what are called antithesis. These, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So, right, there's been six of them. And now Jesus concludes this part of the sermon with these words. You, therefore, my people, my followers, those of you in covenant relationship with me, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Leviticus 19, verse 2, God's people were told, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So Jesus seems to be borrowing from that idea, but instead of speaking of the holiness of God, he, for the first time, in a sort of isolated, absolute way, speaks of God's perfection. You shall be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's worth noting, too, that in the Gospels, the only time and the only way that God is called Father is is of Jesus. He's the Father of Jesus, and he's the Father of of Christians, of sons and daughters, of, of, of him, those that are in relationship with him. So Jesus began this section in verse 20 of chapter 5, saying that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now he says, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so, what, what do we do? Well, we, we do what he's already said. He's, he's told us to be poor in spirit, verse 3. That's to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. None of us are there. He's going to tell us in chapter 6 when we learn to pray that we're to pray, forgive us our sins. So he knows we, we aren't perfect as our Heavenly Father. He knows that our righteousness, well, I mean, it, it does exceed that of the Pharisees if it's inward, outward, right? It's not merely outward like the, the Pharisees. But we don't live that way perfectly either. So Jesus knows that we fall short. But, but this still is something we are called to. We are called to this. Now, it doesn't mean that we can be perfect. Jesus is not saying, oh, you can get there eventually. Maybe when you're 48, like I'm 47, so maybe for me on my next birthday, it'll finally happen. I don't know anyone 48 and older out here that's gotten there. I don't know it because I know some of you and because I know reality. Right? We don't, we don't get there we, we are becoming perfect. We are becoming holy. We are progressively becoming more like Christ. Progressive sanctification is what theologians call this. But we are to pursue the perfection of our Father, the holiness of our Father, the righteousness that comes from the inside out that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We are to be poor in spirit, that we admit I can't do this, God. I can't love my enemy and pray for them. I'm so hurt by that person. And that's a good place to start, but then we say, so help me. 
Today, church, is the second Sunday of Advent. Advent, of course, means coming. And in these weeks leading to Christmas, Christians for centuries, what they do, what we do, even in our gathering this morning, we we try to linger just a little bit more and dwell on the fact that the Son of God came in the flesh. He's coming again personally. He's going to come again gloriously. He came once, but he's going to come again. And we want to linger on that. We don't want to wake up on December 25th. Oh my goodness, that's right. It's the recognition, the birth of Jesus that we celebrate today. That would be a travesty. Babies are amazing, right? Yesterday, some of my family and I, we we had the joy of seeing a baby who's about to turn one. And this little baby was so full of smiles and giggles and baby sounds. And, and we were outside with the baby and the parents and, and just talking, catching up. And there just was so much joy in this, this baby. Adorable, cute. She was, she is so cute. But let's remember that Christmas and Advent, the coming of Jesus, the baby born, is so much more than the recognition of this cute and adorable baby. So much more, so much more. That cute and adorable baby came to die. He even said so. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus said, the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That was his way of saying, I came, I was born, that cute baby, not to just be coddled and cooed over, but to grow up and to live the life you all can't live and then to die for you, to to be your ransom, right? Ransom is a word which means the price of release. It was used, especially in that context in Jesus' day, of money paid to release slaves. Jesus said, I've come to give my life as a ransom, as, as a, the price of release of you that are enslaved to sin. And then the next little word, for. Sometimes it's the little words that are so great. That little word, for, is a Greek word, which in this context especially, it means in place of. It signifies that Jesus came to be the exchange, the substitute Right? He came to be the ransom in exchange for us on the cross for all who accept his payment for sins. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So today, on the second Sunday of Advent, it's fitting that we have our monthly celebration of the Lord's Supper, communion. I read something the other day that I just loved. Uh, This pastor on the other side of the country posted a statement, and I'll quote it to you. He said, "At, at our church, we sometimes refer to the Lord's Supper as the dysfunctional family meal. We are all incomplete works in process. Hence, grace. I love that. We are going to celebrate as a dysfunctional family, incomplete as we all are, sinners yet saints, 
people who are pursuing the perfection of our Father, but we fall short. People who are wanting our righteousness to come from inside out as God changes us, but we fall short. People who hear Jesus say, love your enemies, pray for them, but we've been hurt and it's hard. Let me, let me give our communion invitation, borrowing from the Book of Common Prayer, and Greg and, and the band can come up at this time as well. So brothers and sisters, as we draw near to the Lord's table to celebrate the communion, which means fellowship, as we draw near to celebrate the communion of the body and blood of Christ, we are grateful to remember that our Lord instituted this ordinance for the perpetual memory of his dying for our sakes and the pledge of his undying love as a bond of our union with him and each other as members of his mystical body, as a seal of his promises to us and a renewal of our obedience to him for the blessed assurance of his presence with us who are gathered here in his name as an opportunity for us who love the Savior to feed spiritually on him who is the bread of life and as a pledge of his coming again. Remember, he said, this meal I will eat with you again one day. Hopefully when you came in this morning, you received our new and improved all-in-one communion elements. Hang on to this, and uh, what we're going to do here in a second, we're, we're going to start to sing the next song, Nothing But the Blood. You use this time to, to pray. What is, what is God saying to you? What is he wanting you to do in response to his word today? Maybe it's a time simply to meditate on the, the body and the blood. To, to meditate on the cross. But, but make this your, your time, prayerfully singing, contemplating. And then in the middle of the song, uh, at my instruction and my leading, we'll, we'll do this meal together. It's family. It's dysfunctional as we are, but it's our family meal. And again, you'll notice this is a little different. Uh, the bottom of this fancy chalice has the bread and it's crunchy, I promise. And we'll take and eat that together on my instruction. Then we'll turn it over and we'll We'll take and drink together as well. On the night that Jesus would be betrayed before his death, Matthew 26 through 29 tell us that as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat this in my, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then Luke would add in his account that Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. So let's sing. Let's pray individually, and then in a few moments, we'll eat together.